It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacqua. And this is In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the City of London. This week, we look at AI. It's both terrifying and exciting, Dave. Yes, the revolution of artificial intelligence is unfolding in the banking industry as well as across the economy. But we want to have a look at which banks are really preparing themselves for it and which are likely to be left behind. Yeah, so the main question is, A, will it destroy our lives? And two, if it doesn't destroy our lives, what does it mean for banks? Exactly. Like which of the, and which of those is most important, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah. Our lives or our banks? And we are very lucky to be joined this week by Alexandra Musavezidi. She's the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Evident. That's a strategic benchmarking and intelligence company. And also Parmi Olsen, who is Bloomberg's opinion columnist covering technology. Pardon me, are we all, is it like the end of humankind when AI takes over? Well, I think a lot of people like to say that. There's been a lot of talk about AGI or AI that can surpass human intelligence, potentially causing human extinction. There have been two open letters signed by scientists and AI experts, um, two godfathers of AI who have come up and kind of made warnings about this. But I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked about whether we really need to be paying attention to that or whether that kind of hyperbole is a distraction from some of the more current proposals and calls for scrutiny of the AI algorithms that are being used today that can potentially already cause harm. Alexandra, should we listen to the Godfathers? Are we doomed? <laughs> there are two camps out there, the, the doomers and the, the optimists. And the Godfathers are definitely ringing the alarm bell and talking about, you know, potential for human extinction. And I think Jeff Hinton is saying that might even take place um, in the next five years. We will reach a point where we've got AGI, where we have artificial intelligence being able to surpass human intelligence on every level. And that is very dangerous. And we need to put the guardrails in place. There is concern from experts and the godfathers. Um, They are looking into the future and saying, if we don't put the controls in place, We might end up in the paperclip um, scenario where we ask the AI to optimize for making paperclips and that ends up wiping out us as a human race because the paperclips need the iron in our blood. So actually we need to be made extinct in order to fulfill the task that it was given. And that is maybe a bit of a simplistic way to, to look at the harms long term. What is certain is that we're giving away more control to AI and explainability is becoming a lot harder. That we end up in a paperclip scenario, I think, is highly unlikely. Also because stacking large language models one on top of the other does not bring us to an AGI. 
there are lots of innovations that need to take place in order for that to happen. We need to consider, you know, how it builds a sense of consciousness and motive, but also being able to hook into physical infrastructure. And we're far, far away from that. And then that the optimists who are, you know, describing um, all the great things that can come from AI, from drug discovery. There was something on antibiotic development um, recently. There is lots of um, optimistic scenarios on education, but also efficiency gains and so on, also long term. And again, the optimists who will push back on the doomers would say, AGI will take a lot longer to develop and we will be able to put guardrails so we don't end up being extinct. No paper turn clips. It, turn into paper clips. <laughs> and what are you, what are you, Alexandra? Are you an optimist or a, or a doomer or somewhere in well, between? I'm an optimist. I'm an economist and studied um, the impact of uh, technology and innovation over many decades and looking at every time you see technological advances, it usually leads to, well, productivity gains mostly and also increase in jobs and better jobs. But there are downsides and there's some real risks short term. It's not that what the generative AI and large language model releases are producing potentially new risks. The risks around disinformation um, have been there for a long time, but it's just going to make them faster and more potentially toxic. Parmi, how fast are we going to adopt this? There's one American researcher called Roy Amara. Basically, Amara's law is that we tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short run and underestimating the effect in the long run. Is, is this where we are on AI? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's kind of amazing to see the speed at which people have picked up, for example, a tool like ChatGPT. I mean, people have been talking about large language models and AI and the AI community for years. This um, language model that powers ChatGPT has been around for more than a year. But as soon as it was made available to the public, I think it just turned into this kind of snowball effect where more than 100 million people registered to use it. It became the fastest growing app in history. AI has been in the works just as a field of study since, you know, the 60s. But it's only really just in the last six months that it seems to have captured the public's imagination. You look at something like the Internet, which was much more of a slow burn because that came out. You think about the dot-com boom in the 2000s, early 2000s, and it's really taken like two decades um, for us to get to where we are today with the whole, the booming attention economy and the internet economy. And I almost wonder if the kind of economic fallout or the economic benefits that we get from large language models and generative AI will just come about a lot more quickly uh, than we found with the internet. I do wonder about the impact it'll have on productivity, because I think there've been some studies that have shown that, you know, People thought that the internet would make people more productive, but some studies have shown that it didn't really, depending what kinds of fields and metrics you use. And so I think that's going to be an open question about language models and chatbots that, for example, can support a financial analyst or wealth advisor. Let's say you're a wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley and you've got a chatbot helping you give advice to your clients. Is that really going to make you more productive or is it just going to raise the bar for your productivity? Is it going to kind of give you lots of other levers that you have to poll. So I think that's going to be an open question. I completely agree with that. You mentioned the example of financial advisors, which is a great one, because that is where uh, chat GPT or large language models really lend itself um, in theory to up productivity and efficiency. And some, I think actually it was Morgan Stanley, you mentioned, said that they could see maybe gains of 30 or 40 percent in terms of 
the productivity of their financial advisors. But in order for financial advisors to be able to rely on this and actually reach those kinds of efficiency gains, the content management has to be very clean. All the data has to be tagged and labeled. Um, and that right now is a bit of a trial and error process. I think they mostly refer to it as a sort of a whack-a-mole situation. You tag, label it and, and fix it as you go, but new situations crop up and there's still a lot of testing going on. So the, the jury is still out sort of how quickly this can be adopted. But I do agree that it's going to be um, quicker in its implementation and um, penetration compared to when we saw the internet come. This goes to the heart, doesn't it, of what Evident are doing, of course. And could you maybe explain a little bit about the idea of Evident? You've been an economist and an analyst and a specialist in building indexes. Why create Evident, what it does and why now? And you seem to you seem to have timed it quite well in terms of this explosion of interest in AI and specifically what it means for banks and financial services. We've been looking and working at the measurement of national AI ecosystems for more than half a decade, uh, built the Global AI Index that looked at the strength of national AI ecosystems, ranking countries on their capabilities of development and deployment of AI, and now in January launched the first public benchmark of AI adoption for banks, and we're going to cover other sectors. And my background, as you mentioned, is um, being 20 years plus in index building. I have a economics, mathematics, game theory background. So AI has always sort of been in my mind, it may be more at the back of my mind, but very much at the forefront of my mind when we got asked to the global AI index, um, because nations were issuing their first AI strategies back in 16 and 17 and really needed a way to measure the strength of their ecosystem and try to track the progress and monitor where they were vis-a-vis -vis other countries. And that then became a question from corporates too. There was no visibility on all of the investments plowed into AI, especially by banks over the last five to six years, how they were doing compared to their peers. And so what this particular index does is sort of crack open the black box and creating transparency on where this investment is going into in terms of AI in the banks and how they compare on these capabilities with the view that the stronger you are on your capabilities, the better you are going to be placed to harness the um, developments and innovations on AI. And that's what we definitely are seeing now. So who's winning the race and who's losing? <laughs> it's JP Morgan on top. We have ranked the largest 23 banks in North America and Europe. And the, those who sit in the top 10, um, it is really dominated by the North American banks. There are a few European banks in the top 10. And there are a number of reasons, I think, for that, uh, one of which is that a lot of the big American players have modeled their vision for themselves as banks on big tech companies and so set in motion a structure for the banks that have dedicated AI research labs more that so than their European peers. And they've doubled down on hiring. They've doubled down on partnerships to help accelerate the AI implementation in the banks. And they've done that sooner than their European counterparts. But the Europeans have been favored a, a more of a bottom-up approach, more of an engineering siloed approach. Let's find the problem first. Let's fix it with what we need in that particular case, in that particular division. Whereas the US banks have gone more for a centralized approach. Let's really be on the forefront of innovation uh, and research. And let's centralize that so we can distribute it and operationalize the uh, research that we have uh, across the banks because there's so many common denominators 
in um, what you need to be uh, knowledgeable of in your machine learning, your networks, and so on, that can be used across many different divisions across the bank. So that's the approach that they have taken. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. But Alexander, what exactly are we talking about? So we have a lot of banks basically experimenting with AI. And I understand that the potential prize for a lot of these banks is that, you know, some everyday task could be handled more efficiently and effectively. And so it frees up their analysts and bankers to do more complex analysis. But it, w what is this? This is not using ChatGPT because most Wall Street banks and even European banks that we know of ha have banned some of these tools because they worry that their information will then be put in the system. So is this algorithms? Is this like, you know, quants on steroids? Is this data scientists? Like, what are we talking about in AI for banks? AI has been deeply embedded in the banking system well before the release of ChatGPT. So sort of what ChatGPT and large language models and the release of that six months ago has done is looking at buying these tools off the shelf that were hard to build internally. They were, they were expensive and looking at the use cases where they are able to be used. And it's not everywhere in the bank that large language models can be used. Large language models are really great at being creative if you're, for example, a financial advisor, but they're not very good at one and zeros. Do I make this trade? Yes or no. Do I give this loan? Yes or no. So that's where you could probably um, see that large language models is definitely in the short term won't be used and the banks will continue to use machine learning and other tools and keep developing with those tools on those particular areas of the banks. That's the thing, hasn't it? It's been the large language models that have captured the public's imagination and kind of turbocharged this interest in AI. My children loved playing with it, right, when it came it, out. Do they, they use it for obsessed. homework, Dave? They don't use it. No, they haven't quite got it. They write, write sort of, you know, humorous poems, I think, in the style of about our dog. But they don't, you know, but it's not really got a practical application apart from being a sort of party trick, but it's behind the scenes. It's these other technologies, which, as you said, Alexandra, have been being developed for a long time that are really moving the goalposts. Parmi, what is the most impactful of these, of the aspects of AI, do you think, for maybe for financial services, but more broadly, aside from the, the language models? I think it is language models because the other fields of AI, through machine learning, pattern matching, data analytics, that's been around for some time. Um, but generative AI, which is this form of machine learning which produces content instead of just analyzing content, um, posits this whole kind of new area where computers can do work for us. They can write reports, they can summarize reports, they can create presentations, they can create imagery. So I think the one 
product or service that encapsulates all of that is the chatbot. And the chatbot's been around for at least six or seven years, but six or seven years ago, they were terrible. You know, Facebook tried to release a chatbot service through its messenger app, and they said you could use it to order flowers and order a taxi. And then it turned out there were actually people behind the scenes answering the questions on behalf of the computer because it just wasn't good enough. But now we're at a point where the processing power is strong enough. We've got so much more data being used to train these language models that suddenly these chatbots sound human-like. They're as good as a human. They sound empathetic. They sound knowledgeable sometimes. They do make mistakes. But I think this is sort of up to the individual bank how they want to use these kinds of tools to um, to assist other human beings. So it's almost like having a very, very smart army of interns that you can bring into your company to assist each and every single staff member in whatever way that they need. And just on the point of hiring, I wanted, because you were talking about that earlier, I just wanted to make a quick point that I think there's this instinct to hire an army of AI experts and AI scientists, but it's really interesting. There were some numbers that came out a couple months ago about how many AI researchers are at the top tech companies, and Amazon had the most. They've got about 10,000 AI scientists working for them. Microsoft has something like 7,000. But then look at the company that came up with ChatGPT. There's actually only about 154 AI researchers at OpenAI um, who are responsible for building one of the most transformative AI services that we've ever seen. I think when it comes to hiring AI experts and building up your AI army, as it were, it's not just about the numbers. It's about really getting the right people with the right expertise. And you've really got to have those right ingredients of skills um, and the right strategy to actually make all those experts bring value to whatever it is you're trying to do. But I wonder, could we ever see, Parmi, you know, a robot telling you and, and us not being able to tell difference, like how you invest in your portfolio, like can it actually be, be client facing? I think it could. But the key is, as you said there, without you knowing the difference. And I think there are going to be rules coming out very soon, notably the European Union's AI Act. And one of the rules is you have to disclose if whatever you're using is artificial or human. So yes, maybe I will be talking to an artificial wealth advisor if I ever needed a wealth advisor, but it would have to disclose on the screen that this is a this is an avatar or this is a deep fake or a persona or whatever they want to call it. But yeah, absolutely. I could see that happening. What makes generative AI so powerful is that it can be personalized. It's not saying the same thing to everybody. It's saying the thing that's relevant just to you based on your data, just like a human would. And you've got generative imagery as well to go with that information. So absolutely, you can have a very human-like persona uh, kind of as an alternative to a real person who is talking to clients. Don't think about it, Dave. You're not replacing me as co-host of the podcast. <laughs> uh, no, me neither, right? I'll no, be extra irreplaceable, clearly. <laughs> One of the thing that, things that really struck me um, a couple of months ago, there was a report out, and I think it was um, a McKinsey report, surveying younger, I think it was under 30s, and whether they trusted with their banks something automated, something AI-driven, or something with a human in the loop. And they overwhelmingly trusted the AI system more than the human in the loop which I thought was surprising. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we've seen trust in banks rattled this year. Would SVB mm. have had a run on it if it had an avatar as a CEO? You know, yeah. would, would they be more believable um, if a CEO stood up and yes. you knew they were actually <laughs> not yes. real? Um, but in terms of the talent wars, we're releasing this big talent report uh, where we've 
gone really deep into the talent data of the banks and taking a really close look at the talent profiles of the banks and what is the proportion of AI talent compared to their size? What does it say about the bank's readiness? Who were they hiring from? What are the trends? It's interesting because there's we identify sort of core AI data talent at around 46,000 in total across North America and Europe, which is actually quite a small number. And this is just in banks, right? 46,000 people. Yep. But they're big employers. It's a relatively small number when you, you think about the amount of banks that's distributed across and the employee size and these in this sector. And so we see a lot of shuffling and, and poaching between the banks of getting the best possible talent in with that kind of expertise into the banks. And so we see flows of poaching between the banks. We see flows between regions. We see flows of AI talent and banking moving from the West Coast to New York and Boston. We see a growing number of AI talent, top talent, also going to India. We see flows from the UK, out of the UK to the US predominantly, which is something we we consider looking at. Like, what are the long-term trends of this and how much has Brexit are they, been... These super hot jobs, are they being bid up salaries as well? They're is bidding it? up the salaries. We track this in real time and we can... It was just sort of sitting and looking at how, how hot this has got um, recently also because... Um, everyone's trying to figure out beyond, you know, outside of generative AI to sort of get that talent in, but also in terms of implementing generative AI, you know, really looking for what is the right talent mix and needing to accelerate the hiring to make sure that they are on the front foot of and this being is able what, to implement And they're this. cutting jobs elsewhere, right? In and the jobs are, yeah. You know, banks are cutting jobs, they're also hiring for AI. And we see that the job openings out over the last three months for some of those bigger banks, for more than 40% of those jobs have been for AI talent. And that's quite a lot. And it's a you know, big difference from last year or the year before. Alexander, what also came out in your report is New York is the global center for AI. Um, I think by looking at the number of staff and then you have London, Toronto, um, Bengaluru and, and Paris. Is that surprising that New York is like up top? Or are they just paying more because that's global Wall Street? So it's AI talent for banks, which... I guess it's not that surprising that it sits in New York. But if you look at over the last couple of years, the banks have had their AI talent on the West Coast. And what we're seeing is that they are actually moving to Boston and to New York, to the East Coast and forming a cluster here for AI bank talent, which I thought was quite surprising, actually. In Switzerland, in Holland, in France, Germany, the movement between the countries is actually less. The talent wars are very intense within those countries. So you've got bidding up among the French banks, so BNP Paribas taking from SOCGEN and so on, but not so much. We don't see outflows to the US banks so much from the, the French system, or the French banking system or the Swiss banking system. I mean, you, you say in here that London's second place in that ranking is fragile. Uh, we're obsessed with the fragility of London's economy on this podcast. I mean, how bad does it look for London in, in this war for talent? Are we slipping further behind? And is it's really the scale of the American banks and their purchasing power and, and that clustering you talked around around these coasts. Is that ultimately going to just going to that process is just going to continue? Yeah, it looks like it's going to continue as in the sort of consolidation of power and the bigger banks is only going to intensify, I think. And that means that's not great news for the UK banks. So some of this is UK AI talent and UK banks moving to US banks in the UK. But then there's also the flow from the UK to the US. 
So I wanted to come on to the question of regulation. We've had Rishi Sunak talking about setting up some sort of global framework and wanting Britain to be at the centre of that, uh, whether or not that's a, a reasonable uh, call or not. But the banks are going to have to be forced to do this, aren't they, to kind of embed ethics into their AI development? Certainly, the release of ChatGPT has put regulation at the forefront of every uh, government leader now. And we know that Biden, you know, has been talking to experts to try and frame some thinking around, and that's particularly around safety, but the tension between do we look at safety and how does that work in terms of innovation and that tension between, you know, leaving room, but also making sure it's safe. Then there's the AI Act that is much further ahead than what the US has. Uh, and then you've got Rishi Sunak, who has talked about uh, a third way. Um, sounds familiar. Um, and it is uh, on AI regulation and whether the UK can take a leadership role in formulating what that might look like. You're just talking about Rishi Sunak there and this um, effort to kind of put Britain forward in a leadership role with regulating AI. And I wonder, do you think that's reasonable? I mean, do you think that could actually happen? Because when it comes to antitrust regulation against tech companies, the UK has been coming out ahead of the EU, kind of going quite quickly to try and attack companies. Um, when it comes to, you know, regulating harms on social media, the UK is also trying to move more quickly than the EU. And I get the sense that um, there might be an effort here once again to try and be the global watchdog on AI here in the UK. Um, do you think that could happen, just given the track record on regulation so far? I think the UK has a r real opportunity to take leadership uh, role on on formulating what AI regulation could look like. But it has to ultimately end up in a global body somewhere, right? So it would be a leadership role in setting up a global system that everyone's happy with, which is, uh, which is a hard thing to do. But the UK could certainly... Um, and I think would be trusted to take a leading role in convening everyone around this question and coming up with a solution and brokering a deal, so to speak, in what this global body could look like. Because it's if it's just setting out um, guidelines and principles, that's not really going to help. It needs to have some actual teeth and some ways in which that it can um, step in and where companies get held to account. I mean, the UK is in its own sort of AI strength, if you like, is weakening compared to other nations. It's it's funding fewer R&D labs. It's putting fewer through related, you know, computer science and so on um, in its educational system. It is funding less in compute power and uh, the infrastructure that is needed for capabilities going forward. It's put something forward on, on quantum but it's much less than other nations are doing. So I worry a bit that uh, while the UK is certainly doing something, it's not doing as much as as obviously the US and China, but them aside, Canada, France, the Netherlands, even Ireland. I mean, there are lots of other nations that are, are being a bit more forceful on their AI agenda as a nation. Can we end on an optimistic note of some sort, <laughs> Alexandra? So, you know, is there anything that you can say about the future of the city and all of this? I mean, we, we got in your report about US banks are also doing a lot of hiring in London as well. So do you have a, a more rosy view of what the adoption of AI by banks means for the city of London? Uh, yes, I mean, <laughs> that was very tentative, Alexandra. I don't yeah, know if there's I a bit of a pregnant you. pause there. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, listen, it's a financial centre. And it is, um, it has 
it has strengths. It is very strong on, on AI quants. There are certain pockets within um, the UK banking system that is that is still very, very strong. And there's a real opportunity to, to hold on to that strength. I just think that you, you know, the banks and the policymakers need to be aware that um, that there is a chance to sort of turn this around and and and, and entice talent to stay. Um, but I mean, look, it's second in the world. And while fragile, it's still very strong. So I think there, there is definitely opportunity to maintain that strength if this, if it's focused on. Alexandra and Parmi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. Both. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sadi and Moses Andam. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Alexandra Musavezidi and Parmima Olson. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.